This is Take Two. Is Take Two. I don't know where the fuck you're from, right? But I'm also starting to resent the South a little bit. The South of Dublin or yes, the South yes, of yes. Ireland? I'm starting to become a Northsider. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're becoming indoctrinated by the North. Yeah, side. I'm, I'm becoming indoctrinated fully. No, look, as in. <laughs> I'm I'm West Side, so you're okay. I'm Castlenock. Castlenock. Castlenock, where's that? Beside the Phoenix Park. Oh, fancy oh, stuff, fancy. There you go. We have no beef, so. But yeah, look, <laughs> no as in. I Thank have, God. I have. <laughs> I was just like, we have no flats in Castlenock. <laughs> we Shit. have no flats. We're going to so be at war. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> like, uh, for, for me, I just find this really fucking ironic that, as, as in I come from Malta, so like the country is fucking small enough, mm. but con- considering the county that is Dublin, the different people that you get with like north side and south side mm. is unreal and i feel like the more this podcast has like opened so many doors and like did you man from the drill scene on there recently didn't you yeah exactly exactly but i'm starting to like chime in and slowly understand because it do you know about the unfair advantage or like the topic of having an unfair advantage. Do you mean in terms of postcode lottery start in life unfair advantage? or Just, uh, no, just in general about sometimes people feel overwhelmed by what makes them so unique or like what singles them out sometimes. And like they just feel like... Unique in a good way or bad way? Uh, either way, just unique. <laughs> They're so... overwhelmed by how unique they are in a good way. That's no, no, no. But like you know, some, but you know, so how <laughs> I'd sometimes. I'd be very worried. I don't want to meet them. Listen, I'm, we're fucking here for a therapy session. All right, <laughs> hit me. There you go. So look, uh, I'm gonna bring out my dictionary because you're a smart guy and I am not. So um, you could be a smart guy. I've, uh, I've no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't fucking understand the difference between a doctorate and PhD. PhD. So like, let's go. So uh, unfair <laughs> advantage meaning. So basically, Mm. do you know what your unfair advantage is? First, the definition. Your unfair advantage is the skill you have that is your unique talent. Where someone investing in you or in your idea, your unfair advantage might be why you'd win the investment over the competition. Now, if we were to take it a step back in regards to like competition and investing and all that, but I remember being really... um, I I remember wallowing in self-pity at first when I started the podcast out because I was like, I'm Maltese and no one can relate to me in Ireland, although I'm based in Ireland, because Malta is such a small population that there is it's not big enough where I could lean on the Maltese community here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not Italian, I'm not French. It, like this nationality is somewhat like quite unknown. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I was interviewing Irish people, so but like Irish people were coming and going based on the guests and not staying for me. Mm-hmm. So I remember wallowing in self-pity so much. But then I came across the topic of unfair advantage. And I still need to like read more about it. But then something like clicked in me where I was like, ah, you know, it's really fucking good about that is that I don't understand the social, not even construct, but like I... 
every person that I thought would be a good chat, I would bring on. Because I had those rose-tinted glasses of I don't understand the north side and the south side mm, and all mm, that. Mm, yeah. Um, so I would come on and just have really good chats. And then I upload it and someone's like, who's this fucking guy? Like, he's he's from this. Why is he wearing a balaclava and all that? So I didn't understand the dynamics of Dublin. Does that make sense? Yeah. But that really helped me because now I'm just bringing on whoever. Yeah. Without without the personal connection being there. Mm. And it's just the interest in the conversation being that. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a little bit too deep for something as simple as have the chat with whoever you want to. Mm. But I think it helps that I am like a walking gray area. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But I, I think if you if you look at successful podcasts, the, the podcasters only become well known when the podcast becomes well known so there's a transitionary mm. period between it starts off with guests and not only are the guests interesting but they have a bespoke, bespoke set of skills or knowledge about something that they learn and they can transmit that so the guests are able to educate the audience through the questions the podcaster asks yeah right yeah and so the more interesting your questions are Airplane mode, yeah. The better it is mm. for you. And then, like, you fast forward 50 episodes, you've got 100,000 followers, and mm. now it's more about Deb. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what exactly. I mean? It's not That's like it. the guests are important, but it, the guests are only important because of the banter or the questions that you have. Because mm -hmm. if I listen to a podcast and I don't learn anything, I'm like, that was a complete waste of my time. Yeah, exactly. I, like, I, 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 I just, that, but I'm very much like that anyway. If I'm not entertained or haven't learned something, I'm just like, I could be asleep. <laughs> I could be having a nap. Like, do you oh know my God, I mean? I have so. a question for you, actually. When it comes to reading books, this is like outside of your research. Do you have a certain rule? Like if it's not entertaining you enough, do you stick to reading the book? Yeah, I finish it. You're a finisher. Yeah, I'm a finisher. I have yeah. a 100 page rule. If it doesn't... What if, the book, what if the book is 90 pages? Um, I don't buy books. You're <laughs> a child. Um... For, for now, anyways, I feel like all the books have kind of been at around the 300 page yeah. mark. I just have a 100 page rule now mm. where it's like, if this isn't what I expected it to be or fuck expectations, just like if it's not entertaining me, I'm putting mm. it away, which is a real pity because like books are fucking pricey now. They are. I, I, suppose, so I, I, have a f I have a 15 minute rule with movies. Whoa. Yeah. Like if I'm not... If you haven't got me in the first 15 minutes, I'm not giving you another 90. No way. Like Crazy. Yeah, I just, I, no. I, I'm, 15 is short, though. It man. is, but like you spend five to 10 hours picking a movie on Netflix these days. So I'm kind of like, by the time I pick a movie, I'm like, this better be fucking good. Yeah. It's on, it's on the clock. Let's actually talk about Netflix. What is your take on the fact that they're not even giving us trailers anymore? Are they not? No, what the, do you not scroll on Netflix and then you go to hover over a film and it just gives you an entire scene? Oh, it gives you a scene. But I think if you if it's a Netflix made production, you can click in and then you can see trailers and more. Uh, yeah, 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 sometimes, but not all the time. But they're lazy bastards. Even if they're paying 500 million for something, give me a fucking trailer at least. Like you can install, like you are making billions. You can bring the trailer on. That is very much first world problems. I, I think they've only become profitable in the last couple of years. I think they were up, they were operating at a loss for years because that said that's the business expansion model that they operated under. I'm fairly sure. 
Would you feel comfortable operating at a loss? Well, I suppose that there's a difference between people who operate at a loss but continue to get investment versus people who operate at a loss and they need that money for income. So like mm. you, you you could technically operate this podcast. Like this is this podcast is operating at a loss, do you know what I mean? In terms of you're not making ad revenue enough to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I invested, say, a hundred thousand in your podcast, mm-hmm. you could get the studio that you really wanted. Yeah. But your, po- your podcast is still operating at a loss, but you have money coming in to investors. You just yeah. owe that money out all the time. Exactly, Does like you're sense? reinvesting it. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh my God, so scary. The So unrelated, and we'll get started on CBT, but like the idea of operating, not at a loss, that's fine. Debt. Debt mm. scares me so much. Yeah, rightly yeah. so, yeah. Oh my God, it's petrifying. And I feel like so many people... Um, are co- are comfortable with it like uh, not all the time obviously i feel like the idea of student loans in europe versus in Amer- in america is a completely different story mm. Mm. which i think we should be very very grateful for but in saying that man so i'm just like there are people taking loans out on shoes mm. you see I, I i wonder if it's a case that they're comfortable to have the loans or it's more uncomfortable to not have the things they want to buy with the loans. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so I think in a culture of instant gratification where the importance of image is overstated to not have the pair of shoes for the example you gave might cause more distress than taking on a loan that they can pay back over time. Yeah. You know, so I think I, I just wonder how much of it is is that too. Uh, and then I think there's just a very poor financial decisions made by people longer term because I don't think they understand that if I get a loan to buy a car or to buy something, like that loan might be 20,000 and it's 10% APR. Like people think, well, that's only 22 grand in payback, but that's like, that's the interest per year. Hmm. So it's two grand nearly every year that's stacked on. If it's a five-year loan, you're paying back another 8,000 on top of that. Do you know what I mean? Crazy. So you end up paying 28,000 for something that was 20,000. So like, I'm so dumb. I just, the way I live my life is i don't understand that stuff Mm. so i'm either paying it and like in price (laughs) now you know or i'm not looking at it honestly that's the way because i don't understand this stuff and i always get so nervous when it comes to like negotiation and money i don't get it no matter how hard i try it's like in one ear out the other and so i just go you know what can i can i pay for it Mm. if i could not then it's out. I'm not looking at it anymore. Like, that's it. Because you're happy to go without. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas people might not be happy to go without or might not feel yeah, emotionally that able. Is the gratification or? Also, is Connell's mic okay? Because it's a little bit far off. Like, do you want to bring it? Could you bring it closer? Yeah. You can, it's an easy boom mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is that okay like that, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. It was just, it was at your shoulder. There you go. Yeah, so I think that... The, the the culture of instant gratification it, it's not that it's a good or bad thing it's like everything right mm. it's it's that it needs to be monitored and not given into too regularly so there's nothing wrong with treating yourself impulsively every now and again it depends on what impact those treats are having on your quality of life so if it's a case that i like to have a takeaway well that's fine there's nothing wrong with having a takeaway but it has to be in moderation i can't yeah. have a takeaway every single night of the week because although i might love a Chinese takeaway or a spice bag or something like that. I can't do that every night. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and if I do that for say like three weeks, like what's the impact on my mood? How am I feeling? 
probably lethargic, probably feeling pretty miserable. So it's that's the trade-off. It's like you, you can only enjoy instant gratification if you've made sacrifices in the first place. Because life is about series of sacrifices and compromises. And that instant that gratification is earned rather than just impulsively gained. Mm. Like if I give you a hundred euro. Whereas if I make you work for a hundred euro, because you've earned it, you're going to respect it a little bit more. Whereas if it's just given and handed to you, you're not going to have the same level of respect. 100%. And like that's I, the problem with instant yeah. gratification is that people tend not to respect it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a temporary reinforcement that people get. So if I think, oh, I need a new pair of shoes, right? I don't have them. Uh, why don't I have them? Why does everybody else have nice shoes and I don't? I have all these thoughts in my head. I start feeling a little bit anxious, a little bit low, a little bit upset. So obviously my body starts to kind of get tensed up. So what do I do? I go out and I buy the shoes. Because I buy the shoes, I get rid of all those symptoms. I feel, thank God I bought the shoes. I feel so much better now. But then long term, I don't actually learn to challenge those thoughts. I don't learn to manage my emotions. And it perpetuates the cycle that, shit, next time I get upset, I need to go out and buy something for myself. And that's what kind of gives rise to that cycle. And it just goes around and around and around. When it comes to challenging thoughts, though, because I've had this conversation so many times Mm. where I do think a lot of people, like I've had this conversation plenty with plenty of people. And they're like, but Deb is in... I like to have the the branded shirt. Like that that's how I am. That's how I feel confident. And there's me on the other end. I'm not judging them. So I really hope people don't think that I'm coming across as a judgmental person. It could just be because as you said I'm happy without it. Mm. But I also go like do but you you don't need that shirt to be happy realistically. Like you might be better off having more zeros in your bank account than you are having the same white t-shirts with different logos. Mm-hmm. Is that is that nearly an excuse that they're giving themselves that they're so like okay with the bad deci- with the bad decisions that they probably know they're making mm. and it's projecting onto you. This is for the people that I'm saying that yeah. are adamant. Obviously there are those like if yeah. I'm a multi who, who are adamant just to clarify that question. So people who are adamant that they need the logo on the t-shirt. Yeah. Okay. Um, so again, it, I kind of, it comes down to moderation and if people can afford those things. So mm-hmm. if it's a case that you can afford a 200 euro t-shirt and you can afford to buy one once a week without it making a big impact on your yeah, finances, yeah. then fine. It's not really a problem for you. Do you know exactly. what I mean? So, but if it's a case that, so that, that's the first thing is a financial kind of layer to it, right? If it's a case that you don't feel confident unless you have the logo on the t-shirt then that kind of more ties to a certain sense of self-esteem that you're not enough without this add-on okay so i'm not good enough unless i'm driving a porsche or i'm not good enough unless i have a gucci branded tracksuit or i'm not good enough unless i have you know a louis vuitton bag or whatever it might be and where does that usually come from um, it comes from a general sense of I'm not good enough on a certain level um, oh, okay. or I'm not enough. Um, and so people have these kind of fixed beliefs about themselves. So we talk a lot about this in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a core belief. And so we all have like positive ones and negative ones. Okay. And 
we usually begin to develop these beliefs about ourselves around kind of between kind of four to eight years old, right? And it's two kind of repetitive interactions, usually with parents or sometimes teachers or for being bullied in school or whatever. Okay. But they're kind of the main ways in which we get them. For a lot of people, the negative core beliefs, because they're the ones that cause the distress, that might be, I'm not good enough. I'm useless. I'm ugly. I'm incompetent. Uh, I'm unlovable. So they'll have these kind of core beliefs. Okay. Between the ages of four, eight. That's that's when they start to develop. Wow. Now they're not conscious yeah, of that. Yeah, that they're, they're just kind of like an underlying belief that we have. Wow, okay. Yeah. So for example, if I have a belief that I'm incompetent, okay, mm-hmm. I kind of know on some level that's not good. I don't. I don't like. Yeah, it's uneasy. Yeah, it's an uneasy. It's an uneasy feeling. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So what I do is I kind of develop these rules for living to help protect myself from that. Okay. Such as. So it might be in order to feel competent, I must do everything perfectly. Okay, so I become quite perfectionistic, Mm. right? And that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with being perfectionistic until such a point comes that I'm doing a task that's really challenging to me. Okay, and suddenly I'm not able to do this perfectly. I can't manage it as well. And I get very, very distressed because what happens is that I, so if I feel I'm I'm incompetent, so I must do everything perfectly, then I come on this podcast and I kind of go, oh, I can't do a podcast perfectly. There's no metric or there's no score that I get to say I got 100% in this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So I get quite anxious, quite stressed. I have thoughts in my head. I'm going to make a mistake. People will laugh at me. They'll judge me. They'll think I'm not great. They'll think I'm not competent. Start to get anxious, start to get nervous, apprehensive, start to feel that in my body. Maybe you got kind of nausea in my tummy, tight chest, lump and throat, kind of shoulders are tensed. So my behavior is... I might just avoid the podcast. Hmm. I might just cancel last minute. And because I cancel last minute, it kind of reinforces, I get a temporary relief. So it's like, whew, thank God I canceled. I avoided it. The problem with that though, is that long-term, I can't just avoid everything that makes me anxious. And then I kind of feel like, God, I couldn't even do the podcast. I'm so incompetent, which reactivates my belief about myself on a core level, which causes me immense distress. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. Yeah. So, so to kind of take that as a kind of template and apply that then to somebody who might feel not good enough without the Gucci t-shirt, or they might feel ugly unless they've got a designer brand to distract people from the way they look. Mm. So I, I might feel ugly, but at least if I wear nice clothes, people will compliment me. So you're protected by that layer that you're putting on because clothes are quite literally a protective layer, both physically and psychologically for some people as well. Yeah, that's something that I I, I completely get. I wish I I wish I had cooler clothes. In fairness, like uh, I it's always pretty cool shirt. Yeah, it's a banana. <laughs> Andy Warhol. But uh, look, as in besides that, I think it's more just when it comes to. That sort of stuff. I think self-belief has always been a very interesting topic for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that you said that between the ages of four and eight is super informative years mm. when it comes to that belief stuff. Um, what is it? Like, I think it's, this is such a massive topic. I'm trying to figure out how to like dive into it from the start, but let's go. Me too. (laughs) Like I, I get it. You know what it is? Let's just like address the elephant in the room. It's like CBT is so trendy right now. Mm. Stoic philosophy is so trendy right now as well, Mm. which is amazing. But then, and 
unfortunately, like I was doing all this research and it looks so fucking simple, Con. Mm. Thoughts. So you've got your, um, how was it again? Because I remember that. It's your situation. Mm-hmm. You've got your thoughts and your behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, challenge your thoughts so that you change the way you think. When you change the way you think, you change the way you behave. And that will create a better mood and better emotions. Yeah. So fucking simple. Mm. But then you go, <laughs> I feel anxious right now. Or I don't know, like, uh, let's say if I think that I'm doing a bad job at this podcast. Yeah. If I can change the way I think and go, no, you know what, Deb, you're doing a great job. Yeah. There, isn't there that other fucking chirpy ass voice at the back of your head going, uh-huh, no, motherfucker. Yeah. You're shit. Is in how do you change that voice? I don't know if I have enough time in this podcast to, uh, to answer that question, but I suppose that the, there's, there's a couple of things. And I think that the first is that CBT has kind of been, and just for anyone listening, CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive meaning thoughts, behaviors, meaning your actions or what you do day to day. So the idea kind of historically with CBT is that through altering your kind of thought process, it should alleviate the distressing emotions which would in turn have an impact on the way you behave. So you do Mm -hmm. interventions to challenge the thoughts and you might do interventions to look at what kind of more optimal behaviors people can do to kind of yield better results, okay? The kind of newer wave of CBT, what's called the third wave of CBT, is more interested as well in the emotional process. So what's actually happening for people, Okay. okay? So that's something that's kind of maybe a little bit overlooked. And I think that... In, in terms of what you're talking about there, that kind of inner critic piece, this is something that's, you know, Melanie Fennell, um, who's a low self-esteem expert based in Oxford, would have talked a lot about this. She had an excellent book called Overcoming Low Self-Esteem, which is how to challenge thoughts and how to work with them um, for clients who are interested in that. Um, but I suppose the first thing is that for a lot of people, those thoughts, they're so automatic. So we have negative automatic thoughts and we have thousands of them. Yeah. And the way to kind of think about negative automatic thoughts is, you know, if you wake up on a normal Sunday, right? So you have scenario A and scenario B. Scenario A, you you wake up on a normal Sunday, you're not hungover, you look in the mirror and you kind of think, not great, not terrible, I'll take it and you move on, right? Scenario B, you wake up hungover, okay? You look the exact same, but you look in the mirror and you might kind of notice a blemish or a spot or something and it might kind of stick with you a little bit more. You might look in the mirror for a bit longer and kind of go, Jesus, do you know what I mean? It might kind of get down yourself a little bit more. Exactly. And so the differentiating factor in that is your mood, right? Because obviously Mm. you're depressed mood from from the alcohol the night before, okay? But because your mood is low, those thoughts, those negative automatic thoughts that spin around, they anchor themselves a lot more solidly and they become a lot louder, Okay. Because of this hangover that we're talking about. Exactly. Right now which is kind situation. of the, the the low feeling or the anxiety feeling that they have as a result. I okay. So the 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 first thing that people need to kind of be aware of is well, what actually are those thoughts? Okay. How do I get them out of my head? What most people tend to do is try and block out the thoughts. Okay. So if I'm anxious and I'm worried about a meeting, I will block out the thought about the meeting right now that's called thought suppression and that's absolutely fine if you're doing that every now and again over something that's not that frequent okay okay? the difficulty is is that 
So maybe an exercise, a kind of cognitive exercise that I do with my clients. I might just do it on the podcast here with you if you're interested in that, okay? So I want you to close your eyes for a second. I knew he was going to okay. close my fucking eyes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to leave. Don't worry. Um, so what I want you to do is I'm going to I'm gonna name three things and I don't want you to allow the image into your head of, either, of any of these things. Don't imagine what they look like, what they smell like, the color, the taste, the texture, anything. Okay? So the first one. Don't think about what a goldfish looks like. Okay. The second one. Don't think about what a grey elephant looks like. And the third one. Don't think about what a pint of Guinness looks like. Okay. So don't let any of them into your head at all. Okay. That's the goldfish, the elephant, the Guinness. Okay. So your, your smile has betrayed you and would kind of indicate that you thought about all three of them. I, I actually just read the book and she also brought up the grey elephant. I was, <laughs> there I you was, go. I'm trying so hard not to be a smart ass, but I was going to interrupt you and say, you're going to tell me to close my eyes, aren't I? Yeah. And then I said, you're going to tell me about the feckin' grey elephant and I didn't. So now I look stupid. Carry on. That's okay. So the, the, the purpose of that exercise, okay, is what I'm trying to do is trying to show people that mm. you cannot block out thoughts. Okay, so we don't have control over our thoughts. Okay, so if I mention, you know, for the dad's distance podcast, if I mention FIFA, they might get an image of FIFA on a PlayStation case, right? Or they might get an image of Neymar in the front or whatever it is, right? If I mention fashion, people might think of a dress or they might think of shoes. Or if I mention cars, they might think of a red Ferrari, right? Mm. So you, you, you make associations kind of automatically, okay? It's not the thoughts that cause distress. It's the way we think about them. Okay, so for a lot of people, like the, like you, if I said to you, don't think about a goldfish until, for, until 12 o'clock tonight, all you would think about is a goldfish until 12 o'clock tonight. Exactly, because right? you told me not to think about Exactly. It. So you have to constantly remind yourself, what am I supposed to not think? Oh yeah, the goldfish. Oh shit, there it is. It's ah, in my head again. Ah. Okay, so the, the, that's fine because you don't have a fear of goldfish or it's not a critical voice in your head. Whereas that voice is saying, you're shit, you're not good enough you should kill yourself, uh, you're rubbish, you know, uh, you know, nobody likes you, uh, you're fat, you're ugly, all these things. Blocking that out, it's just going to come in and in and in and in and in like, like, like and that. And you get Consi frustrated because like, why? Absolutely. Uh -huh. and, and so what happens for a lot of people is they feel that their thoughts are speeding up in their head. Mm. Okay. And they feel like their head's going too fast and they can't really catch it. And they feel like they're losing control of their thoughts and they kind of start to breathe and start to get quite panicked. And then they get really anxious and then they kind of do something that's probably not in their best interest. So they might just go to bed for the day or whatever. Right. So like those kind of things, like they're obviously kind of clinical problems. Right. Now, as I said to you, there's nothing wrong with blocking out your thoughts. If it's like, you know, you have a meeting with your boss kind of once a year and you're nervous about it. You're like, I'm not going to think about that because mm -hmm. it's, there's nothing, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. If you have a meeting with your boss every week. That's a different story. That's a different story. Yeah. Absolutely. Because now you're going to spend a full day every week blocking out the thoughts about the meeting tomorrow. And that day is 14% of your week. So it's a long, it's a lot of your week to be blocking it out. And what it tends to do as well is it stops people from actually problem solving what's going on. Mm -hmm. So what is it about the meeting that's making me anxious? Well, I don't like my boss. Okay, well, so what? Well, I'm worried that he'll say something critical to me, right? And what would be so bad about that? Well, that means that uh, I'm not doing a good job. Well, what's that? What's so bad about that? Well, that means that uh, I you know, will get criticized or it I'm not good enough. It leads to I am shit, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And so that's the belief that we have from a very young age activated, which causes that big rise in emotions, which causes us to be distressed. So the way I kind of 
phrase it to people is that you know we, we all get older but very few of us grow up we're very stuck from that age Oof. you know and we can't and I don't mean that disparagingly to people, but we are governed by a kind of internal child that kind of had emotional needs unmet at various points in their life, and that's reactivated. So the kind of way to think about this is, like, let, let's imagine this is a timeline of your life, okay? Mm. And if you, okay, so a way to think about trauma, right? So if you're walking home and you walked in Grafton Street and you're attacked at 20 years old, okay? The next time you walk down Grafton Street, you're going to experience those symptoms and go right back to when you were attacked, okay? It's a resurgence, right? If you're six years old, okay, or four, and your parents kind of criticize you a good bit and say like, oh, you know, you'll never be good at that, or you're kind of shit at that, or why do you think you'd be good at that? Like little kind of undermining comments, right? What happens is they kind of build and build and build and build and build, and you kind of just get used to that sensation that's not very nice, okay? Mm -hmm. But then you kind of put it behind you, go, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to try and be really diligent. And then what happens is someone criticizes you later on in life, despite your efforts, you go all the way kind of emotionally back to that place. And you kind of go, Jesus, and that's why we have this big surge of anxiety through us, okay, yeah. for a lot of people. And that's because, you know, we all have kind of unresolved traumas from childhood, okay? And it doesn't have to be that, you know, you were sexually abused or you were beaten or whatever or neglected horrendously for that to be the case it's we all interpret trauma differently and a trauma is a massive spectrum but the difficulty is is that when you have a trauma and your emotional needs aren't met afterwards and so one of my pet peeves clinically is parents that slag their children and, and the reason i hate it is because and I understand why people do it because they're trying to banter with their kids, right? Which is not a good idea anyway, because children don't understand jokes at a young age. But if, so if you take you and I for a second, mm. okay, if I'm two or three, right, or even four, right, and you're my mum, like you're faster than me, you're stronger than me, you're bigger than me, I depend on you for food, for cuddles, for love, for kisses, for, for everything, right? If I don't know something and I ask you, you can make it up and I'll completely believe you, yeah. right? Like you're the closest thing to a living God I'll ever meet, right? So you kind of, you know everything. Like you're just so powerful in my world, right? And I just think you're the best thing ever because I don't know any different. What do you think it's like for me when you joke about my ability to do things or you take the piss out of me? Or you belittle them. Exactly. Yes. Like I, you're, yeah. it's quite literally the world because that's what you represent to me. It's the world crushing you. Mm. And it makes you kind of think that if you're saying it to me, there must be a reason for it. There must be some truth in it. So I get really hurt and really offended by it. But I also kind of believe it now. And if you do that to me enough, I kind of believe that's maybe there's truth in that, actually, because mommy wouldn't say that or daddy wouldn't say that unless there was truth in it. Why would they make that up? And how do you unwind that? Because I think a lot of people are caught up with all of this sometimes not but a lot of them are caught up and understand this mm. but it's like i can't undo what my parents did mm -hmm. or what my parents said yeah yet here i am dealing with it and i do think that a lot of people as well interestingly enough there i think there has been an increase in articles written about millennials and gen z cutting or like setting boundaries with their parents or mm -hmm. cutting them off but uh, i digress when it comes to this if that happened to you and you have certain self-esteem issues mm. 
but you still love your parents and you're still in contact with with them and you don't plan on letting go of them, but they still did that thing. What the fuck do I do now? I suppose it's, it's the difficulty answering that is it's going to be a different answer for every for context. Every okay. And I suppose the, the, the first, there's two things I really want to say on that. And the first is that that's, it's not about judging the parents for what they did. Okay. That's every, very important. Every parent, no matter how suboptimal they are, every parent does the best they can. Right. And what I tell parents of, you know, what, what I tell clients and what I tell their parents is that the role of every parent is to do a little bit less shit than the parent that came before them because they're not going to do a perfect job. Yeah. So j- just do a little bit less shit every time and generationally it'll kind of work its way down. Okay. Mm. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that you you can love your parents without liking them. Okay. So, you know, I think it's the fourth commandment, like honor thy mother and thy father. Right. And like, we all kind of grew up in that kind of Judeo-Christian value system where like, we believe it's morally right to love your parents. And, and I agree with that because they're the only parents you have. Right. But I think that like, you might love your mom or you might love your dad, but geez, you don't want to spend a night talking to them. Mm. Right. Because they are the same person they always were. But as you grow, your capacity to see that changes and you might see actually you're not actually a great influence on me. The difficulty is that if you're in a position where you kind of still depend on them. So if I have a young baby as a single dad and I need my mum to be able to support me, but my mum is very critical of me and, you know, very kind of histrionic and very anxious and kind of unpleasant to be around, I'm kind of stuck because mm-hmm. I depend on her. I love her, but Jesus, I can't stand her. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it, they're the kind of two main things that I think are really important in terms of your question, what do you do to kind of unpack that? It's about reframing the relationship and reframing expectations, because as you go through a therapeutic process, and, and this is what's scary for people is that you, you realize actually the relationship you thought you had is not the one that you have. And there's a grief for that process that takes place for the client, not just a grief for what was, but for what should have been and what never will be. Yeah. Because the the parent isn't in the room with me, with the client. And some parents are very good. They're very receptive that they can have the conversation with their kids and the kid will say, actually, ma'am, do you know what? For myself, I need boundaries. And some parents are great at that and go, do you know what? I actually didn't realize that I was doing that. And they're quite insightful and they'll change. And they'll change with the child through the child's help and hopefully with some intervention from the therapist as well. Some parents, though, become very critical of them. Yes. Because one is that if I'm your dad and I'm a little bit critical and I'm a little bit miserable in myself and you're a little bit miserable in yourself, which is why you go to therapy and this comes out that actually, do you know what, there's maybe a suboptimal parental relationship going on here. I start to see you do quite well and I realize I should have done that and I didn't do it and I'm kind of jealous of you for doing it Yeah. and I'm kind of pissed off with you and I become more critical of you, which drives an even bigger wedge between the two of us. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But uh, when it comes to, let's say, the self-esteem, mm. uh, I appreciate what you said. I really hope that people find what you said handy about dealing with parents and stuff. Mm. But when it comes to the self-esteem aspect to things, mm. not my fault, but it is my problem. How do you then approach it of, okay... I I did I did the right moves accordingly with my parents. We're at a somewhat healthy place. However, I am still stuck with this negative loop and negative cycle mm-hmm. that I've got going on. 
I know that the answer, a really good answer, is going to therapy and doing the right things. Potentially, yeah. Potentially. Potentially. However, like, let's say people can't afford it because it yeah. is quite a, um, an expensive thing. How do you start unraveling that? Okay, so that's a, that's a very good question. I suppose the, the first thing that people might want to look at is a range of kind of self-help books but kind of clinical self-help books so you know those low self-esteem books are very good or books about kind of improving your lifestyle and different things the second thing that's really important is making sure that you've got support in place and making sure that you can actually go and talk to people if it's not a therapist that you've got somebody that you can have a conversation with but you don't want to blur the lines between a friend and a therapist either Mm. okay someone that you can rant to but someone that you're not going to kind of you know, use as a therapist because that's not fair on your friend and it creates a weird dynamic between the two of you. Yeah, okay. so then they kind of expect you to just come with shit to them all the time. Exactly, exactly. Up. And so, so th- they're the first two things. I think it's really important to become aware of the thoughts that are coming into your head when you're around your parents. So if you're my mom and you have a history of being critical, like sometimes I'll just be emotionally activated by your presence, whether you've done something or not. I'm like, yeah, you go, get defensive. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go, oh, this bitch. And I can't help myself. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just, I'm looking at you and I remember kind of what's been happening in the past, but not really. And I can't match them out, right? So becoming more emotionally and more kind of thought aware is really important. So whatever your thoughts are, try and write them down and say like, what's actually going on in my head here and try and track it. Mm. So I think this, but what's so bad about that? What's so bad about that? What does that say about me? What's the significance of this like on journaling, me? journaling shadow work. Yeah, but, but journaling in a more structured questioning framework, okay. not just kind of loosely writing things out. All right. Then you kind of try and get a list of the emotions that people have, okay? And so... The, the, the emotional one is kind of challenging because different emotions are going to create different body sensations, okay? So, like, you know the difference between guilt and anxiety, right? Guilt is a pit in your stomach. Anxiety is a churning in your stomach, but they're quite different. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so it's about trying to identify what are the physiological sensations or the body sensations that I experience as a result of different emotions because that gives you a chance to name what's actually going on for you, okay? So if I'm with you and you're my mum and you have a habit of criticizing me which makes me instantly feel guilty and bad about myself what well, I need to be able to go, hang on this is guilt I need to sit with this sensation I need to practice some relaxation techniques so I become able to tolerate the distress that it causes me mm. okay so like if you think about emotions on a spectrum okay you can have happiness up here on this end okay and you have sadness and loneliness down here on this end most people when they come to me in in my private practice and in my public practice they'll say my goal is to be happy right which is just a terrible goal right and no disrespect to them like that's that's what they think they want okay the difficulty is is that happiness as a goal is not very helpful when you go to a funeral like you can't be sitting there kind of smiling away at the funeral right so what's more appropriate as a goal is learning to tolerate sadness and learning to tolerate you know loneliness because if you can tolerate them, then you're not afraid of them anymore. How do you tolerate loneliness and sadness? So you begin to learn to try and see what are the physical sensations they bring on and you practice it at a time that you feel relaxed. So if you're someone that can't tolerate loneliness, right, and so you occupy your social calendar with meeting loads of people all the time, right, well then what you need to try and do is say, well, how long can I spend alone? And you time it. You try and and you, you, you document this. So you'll say like, whatever, Saturday, 24th of Feb, I spent... 15 minutes alone and I was okay right well then what you need to do is you need to spend 20 minutes alone the next time 
30 minutes and you increase it by five or 10 minutes each time. And you start to notice, actually, do you know, when I was kind of alone by myself for 45 minutes, I got really anxious, right? Okay, what do you do when you get anxious? Well, I went in my mobile phone or I started, I started, you know, refreshing my Instagram, you know, loads, or I started, you know, watching something on Netflix. The idea is that you're screen free for the time that you just learn to sit in your own presence. If you can't tolerate your own company, you're never going to be happy being alone. Are screens affecting us that bad? Um, I think it depends what's on the screen. Um, Social media, Netflix, distraction. Yeah, I, I think they're probably unhelpful. I mean, you'll often see, like, it, it's rare you see people who will sit through a movie without taking out their phone now. Yeah. Okay. And that's usually an indicator that those people are just a little bit on edge, they're a little bit restless. Wow. Okay. And even now that I've mentioned and we're talking about this, I feel the need to check my phone to see if anyone's been in contact with me. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I, I'm fine not checking it. I'm terrible for replying to people anyway. Okay. Mm. But what you will notice is that it's that instant gratification piece. So I'm sitting here, I'm feeling a little bit distressed, take out my phone, distract myself, instantly kind of go, feel a little bit better. But what happens is like on a graph, my anxiety might be at like a six and I'm, I'm not really noticing the slow build up to it. And then because I check my phone, my anxiety drops to a four, but it's not down low enough that I'm actually rested and relaxed. I'm just a little bit less anxious, if that makes sense. I see. Okay. So it's really important that people try and track like, and like, how are you feeling at different times during the day? So at nine o'clock, two o'clock and six o'clock, I'm just given arbitrary random times. You ask yourself, how am I feeling? How do I know? And what was I thinking about? Mm. So you might have somebody after nine o'clock, like quarter past nine, they say, I'm actually quite anxious, right? Well, how do I know? Well, I've got a tight chest and I'm a little bit breathless. Well, what was going on? Um, I was rushing to bring the kids to school and I had a fight with my husband or I was rushing to get to the podcast and I was stuck in traffic and I was really worried I'd be late and people would judge me for being late and I'd look like an idiot and they'd question, people, question, yeah, boom, 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 boom. And that's the part of being aware of the thoughts and the emotions and the context of what's going on. So now let's talk about the behavior side of things. Mm. Is there a, where does behavior, where does behavior come into it yeah. in such a way that we can help our thoughts out or does the behavior follow the questioning of the thoughts it, so i think it depends i think what you'll find in the kind of classic behaviorist approach to treating depression you have what's called behavioral activation which is where you get people to do things repeatedly to bring on a, a, a lift in mood mm. okay so if i'm quite depressed and i'm struggling to get out of bed and i'm kind of maybe thinking about suicide or self-harm well you need to be out and doing things and through doing things you get a reward you get like a dopamine release or serotonin release. So you've kind of got that operant conditioning, which is that you do something, you get a reward, you're more likely to do it again. Hmm. Okay. That's behavioral activation for people who are depressed. Okay. In terms of behavioral interventions for people with more anxiety disorders, it's about trying to see, well, what is the problem people are facing? So a lot of people would say social anxiety. So some of the main prerequisites of being considered kind of classically social anxious, socially anxious, excuse me, is that people worry that they're going red in the face, that people will judge them, people will talk about them, and that usually they have a kind of cognitive bias or a thought bias that if they speak, they'll sound stupid or they won't have anything to say and they feel humiliated as a result of that, 
Okay. That's what people tend to suffer with social anxiety. So with those people, the behavioral intervention would be that you go to social events incrementally. So you might go to a party, but you'll stay for half an hour. Then you go home. The next time you go for 45 minutes, the next time you go for an hour and you slowly build up your confidence through doing that. And what you do is you practice your relaxation skills while you're at the party. So you kind of drop your shoulders, breathe in, breathe out, more of an internal focus. What most people with anxiety do are they're scanning, they're scanning the world. And you can't possibly take in that because you're kind of looking around and your thoughts are going too fast. So you need to slow down, and just come back to yourself and speak to yourself as if you were a child that was distressed. So that's the, you, you asked about the inner critic piece earlier on, which is that like, you know, you fucking idiot, like stop being anxious. Like, why are you anxious? There's no reason to be anxious. Like if your friend came up to you and says, I'm really anxious, you go, oh my God, are you okay? Like I'm here for you. But if you're anxious in your own head, you go fucking cop on now, get on with this. Like we need to be okay, move on. So it's about trying to notice the way you speak to yourself and the way you speak to other people. Becoming your own best friend. Yes, exactly. And treating yourself as if you're on a compassionate continuum. So the behavioral interventions in anxiety are kind of relaxation skills, mindfulness, that kind of thing, but also being able to break down tasks to move towards a specific goal that that person is suffering from. So I, you know, I can't go to my friend's parties anymore and that's why I'm really anxious because when I go, I get really worked up, right? Well, okay, well, your goal for therapy then, it sounds like is to try and go to these parties. How long do you want to actually go for? How do you want to feel when you're there? Because most people say, I just want to go and not feel anxious. That's not going to happen the first time. You're going to feel anxious. It's more about learning to deal with the anxiety. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that makes so much sense. What is like a common topic besides the concept of... It's going to say, I, I'm not trying to be pessimistic because I know it really works. I'm just trying to think in the concept, uh, like I'm trying to be the listener right now, yeah. where everyone knows these things, right? Mm. Everyone knows that the breathing will work and that it's not going to be right on the first time. Mm. But we are so fucking hard on ourselves. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen that with your clients as well. Mm -hmm. How do you break that loop? The, fir the first thing is becoming actually aware that you are being hard on yourself so people mm. you're right people know to breathe when they feel anxious they know to meditate they know all the good stuff yeah they know we all know yeah. the good stuff but yeah, people yeah. don't know what am i saying to myself in this moment okay so like you and i are having what's called an interpersonal dialogue right person to person yes. right people have an intrapersonal dialogue in their heads okay and that's usually a dialogue with a critic okay and most often that critic will sound just like one of their parents Okay, there'll be a reminder that that's, it not, might not hear it in that voice, but that's just kind of the, the critical voice that's in their head because it has to come from somewhere and it's usually the parents. Okay, not always. Being able to actually say and have a structured conversation with that critic is very helpful. So, you know, you'll never get this right. Well, why do you think that? Oh, because you're useless. Okay, and then you kind of start writing these things down. Okay, so you're quite literally having a conversation in your own head, right, with your thoughts. And you try and write them down and say, well, so my, the one that I'm most worried about is the fact that I'm useless. Well, that's a massively global sweeping statement. I'm useless. Like, is there anything that I'm not useless at? Mm. So, well, I'm not the worst therapist in the world. Um, you know, I'm decent at, you know, whatever it is that you do in your spare time. And if you're not doing things in your spare time, it's very hard for you to have confidence because you don't have anything to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you need to try and develop skills. And that means overcoming 
the anxiety that the critic causes to be able to challenge them. Okay. Okay, so if you have a thought, I'm useless or I'm not good enough, well, you set up your own podcast, you're managing to rent the studio, you've got your, your friend and colleague helping you, you're getting some good guests on because I've, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, you know, and people seem to find you entertaining. Do you know what I mean? You have a master's in uh, digital marketing. So I think if someone was entirely useless, I don't think they'd be able to do any of those things. Yeah, exactly. It's like... So you, you look at those things and then you kind of, you might know then, okay, I'm actually not that useless. Mm. Then the next thing is actually learning how to feel that. Okay, so there's what's called the known sense and the felt sense. So I might know I'm a good therapist because my waiting list is six months long and I, I don't know, I get cards and people say nice things and there's always people looking for therapy with me. But I might feel like I'm not a good therapist. So it's the known versus the felt sense. And part of that is a confidence piece in learning that and kind of saying, well, if I don't feel like a good therapist, how does that make me feel? Well, guilty or embarrassed or whatever. Right, well, I need to learn how to tolerate embarrassment then, don't I? And then I need to do said things in order yes. to overcome that. Yeah. And where does this end? Because it's not happiness. When you're dead. Yeah. L life, is a, life is a series of challenges uh, to be overcome. And people who look for an easy life often end up having the hardest ones because they're people who tend to just avoid doing things that are difficult. Jesus, yeah. And so there's a kind of general kind of stoic principle of responsibility taking, which is really important. Mm. And a lot of people tend to try and blame others for their problems or I'll blame my boss or my parents or whatever. And there might be some merit in that. Absolutely. As you said, yeah. So my, you know, I'm, I'm miserable because of my job. Okay, well, quit your job. Well, it's not that simple. Well, it might not be that simple, but what plan do you have over the next year to change your circumstances? You know? And, and I think a huge problem with society today and just from my own kind of clinical practice, this is something that I've noticed and it's kind of reflected somewhat in the literature as well, is that people have no idea who they want to be. They're just existing through life, going day to day to day to day. They've no concept when they sit down at 25 and say, who do I want to be when I'm 30? And so you break that down into your career you break that down into your personal self. You break that down into your relationship self. You break that down into you as uh, the, the daughter of someone or the son of somebody. And you say, well, what, what, what kind of career do I want to have? Well, I want to make X amount of money, which means I need to be at this job, which means I need to get this many promotions, which means I need to do these courses, which means I need to kind of start now, right? So you wind from five years to, so if I need to be here in five years, where am I in four years? Where am I in three? Where am I in two? Where am I in one? Where am I in six months? Where am I in three months? Where am I in three weeks? Mm. What am I doing now? Mm. Okay. Because if you take responsibility for your life, it gives you more meaning and purpose and existential value because you're working towards a goal. Okay. So that's something that you can do that you don't need therapy for. You just need to kind of plan it out for yourself. Right. And if you're not able to do that, because a lot of people aren't, you sit down with someone that you're close to who's going to encourage you to kind of say, well, you could do this or you could do that. And you try and problem solve and you could put as many solutions as you can. doesn't matter how ridiculous they are. If it's cycling to the moon on a mountain bike, you write it down. And then when you're going through all your solutions, you might go, the mountain bike one probably comes off the list. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you kind of, so that, that's your kind of career self. And then it's like, well, what kind of man do I want to be when I'm 30? Well, I want to be kind. I want to be honest. I want to be loyal or faithful or whatever it is, right? And so then you ask yourself, well, am I practicing those values now? 
And so Aristotle wrote the Nicomachean Ethics, and it's about living the good life, the virtuous life, okay? And in order to become a virtuous person, you need to practice virtuous acts, okay? So if I want to be known as someone who's dependable to myself, well, then I need to kind of show up on time. Like, so I, I think I'm reasonably dependable. I show up to work on time. I show up to my clinic on time. I meet my friends on time. I show up here on time. You know, so that's something that I'm trying to practice in order to be that person, okay? And through practicing it, you begin to believe that actually you have capacity for it. And if you let yourself down, you need to kind of have a bit of a conversation. You don't need to beat yourself up, but say, what happened that I'm not practicing that? Yeah. And it's about also, if you want to be an honest person, be honest all the time, regardless of the consequences. So if you see yourself as wanting to be an honest person in five years and, you know, you you do something deceitful or you lie or you cheat or you steal, well, be honest with it. Own it. Own the distress and move on. Do you know what I mean? Take your punishment, take whatever consequences that you brought on. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. Do you know what I mean? So that's part of that. Where's the balance between being honest with yourself and then being super hard with yourself? I don't think you're being honest. super hard if you're being honest. You're not being super hard if you're not being, if you're being honest. What do you mean by that? Well, so it depends. I mean, like if I say to myself, I'm not working hard enough. Okay. Okay. Well, is that actually, the, is there truth in that? <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, so if I've had a week's annual leave and I say to myself, God, you're not working hard enough. Well, that's not what annual leave is for. Mm. Annual leave is to relax. I need to learn. Like to being work. reasonable. Yes. Got you. Okay. So whereas if I'm in work and I have my feet up in the desk and I'm falling asleep and when clients are talking, I'm kind of on my phone, mm. which would be outrageous. But if, if the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if, if I, if, if I'm doing that, well, then it's a case of, am I working hard enough? But no, mm. you're not working hard enough at all. Like what you're doing is really unprofessional actually. And maybe, you know, that's not a judgment. That's just, that's the actual case. Mm -hmm. Is there any journal or something or book that you would recommend that would help with questioning aspect of things or like the bearer of questions in order to go down that rabbit hole with yourself for a greater side of you to come out of the other I, end? I think the most important questions to ask yourself right, when you have negative thoughts are, why is that thought so bad? Okay. What does it say about me? Why is it so hard to sit with? If it means X, then what's so bad about that? What does that mean? So you just consistently ask the questions until you get down and you'll notice that it's, the, the questions will start from kind of externally focused. So um, Deb doesn't like me. Karina doesn't like me. They think I'm a joke. They think I'm bad. They think I'm not interesting or entertaining. And then you can say, well, what's so bad about that? So it goes from that external focus to, well, if they think that, then that means I am boring. I am dull. Mm. What would be so bad about that? Well, that means no one will want to hang out with me. I won't have any friends. I'll be alone. What would be so bad about that? That would be the worst thing, being alone, right? I see. Do you know what I mean? So you track it through asking the questions of it. And for anyone that's interested, that's called, it's a process called Socratic questioning. Okay obviously from the philosopher Socrates, so Socratic questioning. If people Google that, they'll be able to kind of figure out a few questions that are maybe a little bit more appropriate for the situations that they're in. Yeah, let me check the time. Okay, we've got 15 minutes left. Let's talk a little bit about philosophy. 
So. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's why I keep looking down at my watch. By the way, I'm really enjoying it. But that's when okay. you when you're really enjoying it, then the time fucking flies and like gets away from you. So, in regards, if I'm not mistaken, Stoic philosophy had a massive influence in CBT, right? Mm. And a lot of people have sort of it's become a trend as I started off the podcast with and there are a lot of people for it and a lot of people against it. Obviously, stoicism or being very stoic sometimes comes off in a bad way or in a bad light where it's just like, um, I have no feelings or nothing. Mm. Like I am just a meat suit roaming around this pebble in space. Yeah. Which in fairness is quite true. Yeah. But, I've uh, never heard that ex- that description before. Yeah, look, I'm telling bad. you, smartest person over here. I huh? like. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm joking, by the way. But uh, so there's a lot of things that are going through because a lot of us are very anxious or spiral over the element of being out of co- like out of touch or out of control of things. Mm. When in reality, a lot of things are not in our control. Yeah. And that's where stoicism really comes into it. Yeah. But then another thing is we are not our thoughts either. How do we make friends with the idea that we are not our thoughts? How do we make friends with the idea that we're not our thoughts? Um, okay, so I'm going to try and answer that in a, in a reasonably roundabout but scenic route. Um, so on my doctorate um one of the modules is philosophy and one of my 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 areas of interest anyway is stoic philosophy um and i I think it kind of goes back to the moderation piece okay Mm. in that there's there's nothing nothing is good or bad only the way we think about it makes it so right that's a real stoic belief okay and so it's the stoicism at its root is the way we think about things influences the way we feel about them and the way that we behave as a result Okay, so if a dog comes into the room here, so cyanophobia is a fear of dogs. Okay, if I have a fear of dog, it's because of the way I think about the dog. So you might think, oh, it's cuddly, it's cute, it's friendly. I might think the dog will bite me, I'll get infected, I'll go to hospital and die. Right? The dog is the same level of threat to both of us, but it's only the way I think about it which is influencing the way I feel. Okay. Okay. So I, I think stoicism has its place and I think it's really important. Okay, because I think the risk. Like you, you kind of have different, it's a spectrum, right? So you kind of have like severe emotional reasoning up the end and you have stoicism down here, like extreme stoicism where yeah. people are trying to be almost cold and cut off and just I'm, I'm a logical beast and I'm nothing else, okay? Whereas emotional reasoning is that if you say to me, uh, you don't like black t-shirts, right? And I feel offended because I'm wearing a black t-shirt. So because I feel bad, I think what you said is bad, mm-hmm. right? So my emotions are dictating my judgment on it. Does that make sense? Yes. That's really unhelpful, but also being super logical and not being in touch with your emotions is very unhelpful too, because there's times where you're trying to process things emotionally and you you cannot intellectualize your way out of it, okay, no matter how hard you try. So for example, with grief, with um, with sadness or when things go wrong, people go, I'm not going to think about that now, I'm just going to focus on myself. And that's why people kind of, you know, like the, the gym is therapy, like it's it's not, uh, you know, it's it's definitely good for you, but it's not therapy. You know what I mean? And so there comes a point in time where you write out like your 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 stoic piece, but you also kind of say, well, you know, actually I do feel quite sad and I do feel quite upset and I do feel quite vulnerable. And that's not a weakness to be able to own that if you're going to do something about it. The weakness is when you feel like that and you kind of run away from it because you're not able to process it. Mm. 
And so it depends on what you consider to be weakness or strength, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of talk about like alpha males and sigma males and this kind of thing. And Beta. Yeah. So like you need to, um, you, you know, you kind of need to kind of go into ghost mode and everything's really extreme. Yes. Right. It is. And the, the difficulty with that is that most people don't exist on the extremes. Do you know, and that'll only suit a really, really tiny percentage of the population. Do you know what I mean? But people are looking for something to cling to. And they think that like, stoicism in its really pure form is going to be the answer to all their problems. But they don't actually learn a lot of the skills that are required for stoicism. And then even the people that do, they realize, okay, this maybe isn't enough. Do you know what I mean? No, for a lot of people it is. And it's like for people who've, if you imagine a distress scale, kind of one to 10, if you're a 10 out of 10, or sorry, if you're a kind of five to 10, you probably need some form of clinical help potentially with that. If you're in that one to three range, you're probably learning stoic skills would be great, right? Yeah. And it's be, and it's going to be enough for you, right? Mm -hmm. Or learning to manage your emotions would be plenty for you, right? Kind of basic interventions, lifestyle changes. If you're kind of in that mid range, uh, which is where a lot of people reside, which is kind of like three to five, those stoic skills might be very helpful, but they might not be enough. So stoicism, like like anything, you know, moderation is is really important and not kind of putting all your eggs in one basket and thinking it's going to be the panacea or the cure-all because it won't be. Yeah, and um, identifying with those things as yeah. like the gym being my therapy, the moment mm -hmm. that the gym is taken away from me, I'm fucked. That's yeah. not a good state to be in. Yeah, and so the, the difficulty is that people use certain things like obviously exercise is really important yes the difficulty is that you you can very quickly become obsessed with using that to tolerate emotional distress which is fine until you get to a point in your life where if you are going to be the alpha male who's kind of working all the time to try and dominate the workplace you can't use the gym mm. and so now you're swapping it for work so you become quite obsessional and you just pour all your focus into one or the other thing do you know what i mean so yeah. it's like if you don't learn balance you're probably not going to have the most fulfilling or happy life. You can be super successful. You can be the multimillionaire with the Lamborghini, you know, with the bikini models and do all those things, but still be able to practice balance. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But sometimes it just requires a lot of sacrifice at certain points in your life. But it's about knowing that the period of intense sacrifice has to come to an end at some point so you can manage yourself a little bit more. Most people end up having breakdowns when they go too much into kind of ghost and sacrifice mode because they're just not able to tolerate it. And then they feel like they've let themselves down because they're not doing a stepped approach into it. They just jump into it. Well, I'm going to delete all my social media apps. I'm going to focus on the gym. I'm going to eat really healthy. I'm going to do nothing but kind of train five days a week, six days a week. And it's like, super, do that. But you haven't earned the right to that. You've just thrown yourself into it. You know, it's like, well, why don't you start by doing three days a week? And if that works and you can do that for three weeks, then increase it to four. You need to earn the right to work your way up rather than thinking you're just entitled to it. Like, wow, I'm not going to run a marathon tomorrow. I need to earn the right to run the marathon, you know. And so and then if I run the marathon, I'm not grateful I was given the opportunity to run the marathon. I was deserving of it. Yeah. I think it's really important to separate gratefulness from deserving. So if, if you say, oh, I'm really grateful I have the opportunity to do the podcast, why? Like, you have to go out of your way to do this. Mm. Like, you deserve it. You've worked hard to set it up. Okay. So see yourself as deserving of something rather than being grateful of things. Is, how, is what I think is important. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. The entitlement versus the earning of it, of something mm. as simple as that. Because you go, right, it's Sunday, Monday, 6 a.m., yeah. out, every day till Friday. Yeah. 
and then it's not really the case. But discipline isn't learned in intense bouts of things. Discipline is learned over time. It's like sculpting a statue. You chisel away slowly at it to break it down so you can see it happen over time and you become appreciative of the sacrifices that go into it. Yes. Rather than making one really intense sacrifice, having the goals that are up here. Because inevitably when people set goals that are up here, they end up falling. Even if it's a tiny bit short, they know they've fallen short, which demotivates them. So they're less likely. So they become kind of obsessional, but in a kind of very unhelpful way because they launch themselves into it, have a tendency to kind of come up short, feel like a failure, restart, 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 restart. And then you get so obsessed not, over. Yeah, and it's just not helpful for people. No. Exactly. Oh my God. I bloody love this. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. L like, I feel like I'm not all questioned out. I have so much more to talk about, but I'm just like all to you. You're gonna, you're coming back on. Like, yeah, I look forward to it. I look um, forward uh, to it. Please, honestly, thank you so much for joining me, Connell. I really, yeah, thanks for having it. me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it let's go. <laughs> Beta! Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching slash listening. Do whatever you need to do. Have a lovely day. Bye bye. Oh my god. That was amazing.